Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And Ravi Abbott. And uh, hopefully this is not our unlucky episode number 13. Oh, hopefully not. <laughs> now, we've got a um, pretty good guest this week for the uh, Hardcore Commodore fans. Oh, pretty good. This is Bill Hurd. He's uh, one of the top Commodore old school engineers, one of the 8-bit Main yeah, man. eight big gods. I think it's fair to say, isn't yep. it? Now, uh, Bill was the guy behind the uh, the TED machines, the Commodore sixteen plus four, one one six, and the uh, Commodore one twenty eight. A bit later on as well. You see, these are all machines of your era, Dan. <laughs> these are all like ones that you got when you were younger. Weren't yeah, they? Oh, the plus four was my first machine. Yeah, so yeah. talking to Bill's going to be very exciting. He's even got a story about how he broke a uh, forty thousand dollar joystick prototype as well. So <laughs> <laughs> Bill's on in around uh, half an hour from now. Before that, let's get to this week's big tech and retro stories. Then, Ravi. Yes, yeah, so the first one is pretty unusual, which is a GTA Deer. GTA, they have a massive modding community, and for years they've kind of added crazy little mods to see what happens, mm-hmm. random stuff. Now, GTA V's like a complete world of its own that's, yeah. uh, you know, living on its own, doing its own stuff. So they've created a, a Deer that's AI powered. We're talking an animal here. An deer. animal, yeah. yeah, a Deer <laughs> that you can watch on Twitch mm-hmm. streaming that's been running around and 200,000 people have been watching this. So it's quite popular. And so far, the deer's been caught in a gangland gun battle, <laughs> is invaded a military base and been chased by the police. Now, is, this, um, is this like computer control then? It's AI, is it? It's AI. Okay. And what happens is every hour it teleports to a new location. Right, okay. So it can't get stuck anywhere. Is it a bit like um, like Goat Simulator? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually it's, one of the funniest kind, games ever. But, but it's kind of like you've got this predefined world with mm-hmm. all these stuff and all these actions that get triggered off other stuff, and then you just shove a deer in there running through <laughs> everything and see what chaos it creates. It is kind of depressing that an AI-controlled deer is probably better than <laughs> Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, and maybe this kind of deer games, everyone wants to play yeah. fawns or deers. This is the new uh, But GTA's, GTA's always had a good history, especially on the PC, of mods. I mean, it even go back to like Vice City and stuff like oh, that. Yeah, was... Back to the Future mod for Vice yeah. City. Oh, mate, that's awesome. With yeah. the DeLorean and the Flame Trail. Yeah. I think it's definitely the platform to play it isn't it? Yeah, definitely with the PC. I remember we used to play a thing called Multi Theft Auto, which was mm. Grand Theft Auto Online, really early days, and that was hilarious. Yeah, 56k racers. Oh my word. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you've been reading about this um, Xbox allowing you to sell back your digital games. Yeah, this is interesting because we talked like last week about mm. um, Dave Perry, and he was going on about how, you know, kind of Steam and digital games. It's downloading. You don't feel like you have a real copy. or You don't feel like you've got a real thing. Yeah. Well, Xbox, they, they did a survey about Xbox users. Mm-hmm. And they said if the console would offer an option to sell them back mm-hmm. for 10% of the purchase price. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Would you be interested in such an offer? So you can lose your game forever and you could get, you know, you spent £50, you can get £5 back. Is it worth it? Maybe it's it's money out of nothing. Uh, I, I suppose, don't know. I mean, some people are. I, I always see it, you know, you go to like CEX or somewhere like that, the amount of copies of a game that's like, you know, I was in the CEX here in town the other day and there's loads of copies of like Fallout 4 and stuff there that games that only came out in the last year or so. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, they'll just blast through a game get rid of it and never play it again. Yeah, so. complete it and then chuck yeah. it, you know. So I think for those kind of people, I mean, if you've got kind of a, it's taken up room on your hard disk and you're never going to play it again, I suppose, you might as well get something for it that can go towards a new game, I guess. But Yeah, I guess I guess they're also probably doing this to encourage sales on the Xbox One. You get some money back in your account, you're going to buy something else, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. well, it says it <laughs> says you get credited with store credit, so yeah. it's not. <laughs> but it's in your check in the post. Yeah, yeah you're not getting it through PayPal. <laughs> that so. is a good point, though, because it's kind of, on Xbox Live, generally the digital games cost actually more than they do to buy the disc in the shop. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, also some of the remakes as well. You can go to a shop and buy 50p for an old Xbox yeah. One game and they'll have them online. I don't know. Actually, did they say that they were going to have the whole Xbox One library downloadable? Yeah, I think you can. Pretty much every Xbox One game Mm. is on the store, but you're right. I mean, they often don't discount a lot of the older games. Okay. So, I mean, you get like, you know, not the last Call of Duty, the one before, I think still like 45 quid or something on there. I've literally only played on the Xbox One at this shop. Yeah. (laughs) I've not, you know, touched one in IRL. I've got an Xbox One and I generally don't buy many digital-only games that are maybe above, like, £10. I, would, okay. I don't think I'd ever go and spend, like, 55 So you have little titles and yeah, indie, indie games and that, really. And, yeah. yeah. But I, I've never really bought, like, a AAA game. I'd always go to the shop and buy a disc. Because, it can, you know, like, like you said a minute ago, then it kind of feels more like you own it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and often the price can be, like, 10, 20 quid cheaper doing it that way. 
you think, is it going to get like movies and uh, music where the physical product kind of dies out and everyone just gets them digitally eventually, yeah. which it probably will. But. I don't know. And then there'll be a whole resurgence of guys collecting physical products as well. So maybe there'll be like two levels of it. Like the know? vinyl scene, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like limited edition. You're not real collectors. <laughs> you know? It's a pretty depressing future to think of it that way, isn't it? Yeah. But it's... Uh... Yeah, I mean, at least this way, they're trying to bring in an element of, you know, you you can actually trade your games in and kind of sell them on again, so... That's it, and uh, moving on from that, we're saying that uh, there's this article here on Kotaku. Yeah. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which is that retro gamers are still... Retro gaming can still make you lots of money. Yeah, well, it's... Um, I, I think it's only getting bigger all the time, isn't it? Yeah, they're saying, you know, rarer games... Uh, would be one price, and now the next year they've doubled in value already, and that's mm-hmm. been happening in quite a few times. I think there are people, though, and I've read a few few of these on forums and stuff, people that are actually not that interested in gaming anymore, but they kind of they use it as an investment. Dude, I have to admit, I'm quite bad like that. I've got this giant CD32 collection, mm. and like last night was when I was going through a few of the titles and those games that I haven't even fully played on there. Yeah. Because I know they're shovelware crap. So. But you, yeah, you want to own them, but then yeah. do you buy them with the intent of just having the collection or do you do it like because you think I'll sell it on and I usually my money? buy it when it comes up cheap. Yeah. And okay. it's just the intent of having the big complete collection. Yeah, you want to collect it yourself though, don't yeah. you? But I think there are guys that will intentionally buy stuff and hoard it and then just for the purpose of selling it on in a couple oh, of years. Oh, what? So they'll like get all the copies of GoldenEye for the N64? Yeah, then buy hope, them all up off eBay. And yeah, then, th- then hope that it'll like you know double the money in a couple of years. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, th- there are people in the market like that, but it's um, which I, I guess th- you're going to get that with any hobby, aren't you? You know, if, if, if the prices are increasing. If you could have gone back in time when oh, Sega dude. had just collapsed or something <laughs> and just bought up all the stock, you know. My biggest regret, and I still kick myself to this day, is you know that Commodore 64 games console thing that came out that was what, crap. The GS. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, yeah. My local Tandy was selling them off for fifteen pounds in about fifteen quid in about 1995. Yeah, and they go for about 500 quid on eBay now. Imagine just having a stack of them. I can still picture it walking in there. I was with my dad yeah. and we are getting some like batteries or something. There's a big pile of them. Must have been about 30 of them just stacked well, up near the till. You get, you get Amigas for like 13, 14 quid in some of the newspapers. Yeah. Like AdMag and stuff like yeah. that. Dude, was... You couldn't give them away back then, <laughs> could you? But yeah, if only we knew, eh? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Now, this article in The Guardian is quite interesting. Uh, 12 things you don't remember about old games. Now, I'm guessing most of our audience probably don't fall into this um, category. Yeah, because but... <laughs> we're always playing them. But... And this is quite a nostalgic look back when you look at it. Um, they said here, you had to type in games for yourself, um, which you never really had to, to be fair. But um, a lot of people did. Did you ever do type in games from magazines? No, not at all. No, I always got cover discs. I yeah, think yeah. that I was too late in the game for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I kind of did, but only because I got given like some old magazines by my auntie. Okay. And like, they had all the codes and stuff. I think it was something called Input, it was called. I've still got them, actually. And you type them all in, you'd spend ages doing it, and then it wouldn't work. <laughs> and then next month, they'd print like, print like an errata or something, so you know, all the typos they made in it. Yeah, yeah. So you'd sit there for a month and why doesn't it work? And they actually made the mistake. Oh, God. Um, this is what a joypad looked like in the early 1980s, and they've got a picture of, uh, it's not actually a joypad, it's a joystick, an Atari 2600 joystick with the one button. I think I think the only point on this is, because I've got quite a quite a few, like, you know, Games came with giant instructions books mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff that we know already as retro collectors. Yeah. But one point that I think everyone forgets is number seven. Number seven on the list. Yeah. Games were brutally hard. And they are. Yeah, dude. Uh, those old games were absolutely <laughs> solid. You know what I think it is, though? Because a lot of those games were made for the arcade. And obviously they want you to put more money in. Yeah, and they're made to last as well because you've spent 60 quid on your game. That's got to last you a good couple of months oh, you know, when I was a kid I might get a new game maybe you know apart from obviously when I got into the copying scene eventually uh, but legit games like on the Commodore 8-bit platforms before I learned how to do tape-to-tape copying I might get a new game every like what four months or something yeah yeah know? and you'd, you'd go home every day and try and play it or, I remember I'd get to a one point in a level on games and I'd just have to stop because I couldn't get any further yeah. but I have loads of games stuck at these points <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and you couldn't go and watch a YouTube tutorial no or anything no, about there, was no there was no playthroughs at all and following on from that number eight there was there was no such thing as saving the game. Yeah, there was true, there it? was no saving games. No. <laughs> there was it, pass, 
passcodes. Yeah, they were useful when they came in, but I, the amount of games, I mean, I, I've got a lot of old games that I love. I mean, uh, Chaos Engine, you know, we had yeah. uh, Mike Montgomery on the show in the last couple of weeks. But that, I can't get past like the second level on it most of, most of the time. I was playing Sleepwalker yeah. all last night with my new housemate, playing Sleepwalker, trying to show him some good CD32 games. We couldn't yeah. get past the first obstacle. We yeah. had to go and look at a Let's Play, <laughs> and then we're like, oh my God, that's how it's done. <laughs> but dude, like back then, yeah, you, you get the, the disc and you put it in, you would literally you just sit there for hours until you figured it out, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, it's just a trial and error. Yeah, it is, but I, I think obviously you have more time when you're a kid to do it, and I think now, do you often find that you've got too many games? Yeah, yeah, I, it's like TV channels. You've got this giant choice, you yeah. just don't know what to play, you know. It's a real thing, isn't it, you know, it's um, you're having too much choice, actually, by the time you've decided to play something... Yeah. You've spent like 20 minutes trying to pick a game and then you're like, oh, not really But also anymore. with modern gaming as well, I've, I've got a PC that loves to crash. So it's kind of, which, uh, you know, which graphics setting should I have on this and how's it going to handle it? That's yeah, yeah. the kind of thing you also have to consider. Yeah, it's great. And, and uh, the last one on here, social gaming meant going to the arcade uh, before the days of uh, Xbox Live and uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, actually socialising rather than getting kids shouting at you down <laughs> you, you did you just got it in your ear then didn't you yeah. <laughs> by a bigger boy <laughs> so uh, yeah it's quite an interesting article in the guardian i'm sure pretty much everyone who listens to our show will remember all of them but you know quite nice to see how the the mainstream cover things isn't it definitely now uh, 100 million dollars for a 15 year old mmo game yeah this this really impressed me i was looking at this uh MMO games in Japan, mm -hmm. and uh, this is a, a Korean one actually. It's called The Legend of Mir 2, and it looks like it was released in 2002, 2003. Okay. So, so lots of people were kind of playing that, and it was a big hit back in the time. It was massive over in, in Asia then, was it? Yeah, 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 like 250,000 players mm -hmm. they had on it. Now, a company's uh, Shanda Games have made it on the mobile version. They've released it, and all these old players have gone back on it. And there's loads of people going on this, going, "Why is this app popular?" And then people start talking about it, and then they want to download it. And yeah, get a yeah. It as well. And suddenly, you're making a hundred million dollars a month yeah, of a 15 year old MMO. Yeah, th this game that they abandoned years ago and thought that nobody was interested in makes you wonder what other old kind of games or franchises they could just update again slightly and. Yeah, it's totally. Like, all over again. They were saying this was one that was in the internet cafes. Okay. So it was kind of installed in all the internet cafes and all the youths would go and hang at the cafe and play it when they were kids. Well, it said here, you know, but back then only 5% of the uh, the country's populace had online access. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the nostalgia dollar, as they call it, is a lot of money, isn't it? Is it I think, you know. And I guess, um, I guess it doesn't matter what platform you're on or mm -hmm. what MMO. If your friends are on there, you're going to join. So. Yeah, especially <laughs> that. I mean, it's kind of, it was long enough ago to be nostalgic, I think, like 2002. Um, and the fact that, you know, p people that did play that game now will be grown up probably in like the end of the 30s or late 20s and mm. they'll have jobs in that now, have money and, oh yeah, that reminds me of a time when, you know, I was at college or whatever and they'll, they'll want to go back and kind of relive that again. That's, yeah, and um, it's also like probably a, a, a location or a land that they're familiar with, you know. Uh, yeah, and you're walking around, it's like, like visiting an old town again. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. like when I play Vice City, it's like, you know, you're going back to your, oh, I know this little alleyway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. things you forgot about and stuff, yeah. yeah. Now, there's been a massive demo party on over the weekend. Well, um, one that we want to go to. I know. <laughs> we did mention this, didn't we, when it, when it first got announced, I think back in January. Um, but Revision 2016 has just been on. Did you watch any of it? Yeah, I, I, I watched all the streams and mm. it was great. Evilbot, um, who is the kind of logo and motto of uh, Revision, okay. Evilbot was democratic this year and they had a, a voting system where people could vote on the spot or via the app on demos. So they had some stuff that was really democratic. And, Rather than just people on the floor and that. And yeah, place, or, yeah, or like a, a panel of judges or... Well, this looks, because I mean, I, I did see a bit of the stream on Saturday and I think they were on the um, the Commodore 64 uh, bit when I watched. Well, I, I found out that, you know, watching the live stream, that there's so much more to revision because, to be honest, I've only watched it in the past for the Amiga demos. Yeah. And I saw that there was ANSI ASCII art, yeah. which is absolutely amazing. There's video production, so people making their own with video cameras. Yeah, you tell me about this. Is it people doing like stop motion animation versions I, like in real life? I think of demos? so. I, I think so. I've not actually seen it yet, <laughs> but uh, there's a vis video section, and there was one where they did Desert Dream. 
Right. And it was a guy with like a ping pong ball and yeah. a tennis ball with pins in it spinning it around and kind of <laughs> making crazy effects. Well, there is a few of those on YouTube, isn't there? You can kind of watch... Um, is it Jesus on Ease? Yeah, yeah. The one where there's actually real, the real life, real footage. life version. Yeah, yeah they, yeah. they show the girls like dancing in the video, and yeah. um, you can actually watch it. That like, the, the footage they filmed on VHS back then, and it's kind of surreal when you'd spent you know so long looking at the actual demo to see it in real life. You like, but but this is amazing because they had. Well, I was watching it the other night and had Neo Geo CD demos. All right, okay. They had like. Uh, Texas Instruments, the really early stuff, you know, they had like... Very obscure. <laughs> very, uh, some total crazy systems that they're making, beautiful demos for and kind of amazing graphics. And the one that everyone's talking about on the Amiga then, number eight, um, is it Dollar Sit Ahmed by Laura Mipsum? It's supposed to be a Ham 8 video, I think. Ham 8, okay. Or a Ham mode video, so it was a demo all done in Ham. And that's quite demanding on the system, isn't it, as well? Oh yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of these at the moment, I think they're all on the website if you want to watch them. A lot of them are on YouTube as well, aren't they? Yeah, so they're split into sections. There'll be like Amiga old school demos. There'll be um, Amiga 060, which surprisingly, Dan, there was a lot of 060 ECS demos, which is really odd. Might run my uh, my vampire card for my Probably, that's that's probably where they're going. (laughs) Well, there's even like, I mean, what's kind of cool is there's kind of the modern scene is represented here as well. Like there's, you know, the PC scene demos have yeah. been shown in here yeah. as well. And they kind of split, they even had like 64K competitions just for the, the modern day PC. So. Oh, yes. And there's a 4K scene and a scene where they're making demos to fit in the tidiest amount of space. <laughs> you know. I think that's where the talent comes out because I think, you know, I, I'm not a coder or a graphics artist or anything like that, but I imagine it's got to be easier making a demo that fits into four gigabytes than 4K, you know what I mean? Yeah, so. and uh, even when they presented the the like little 4K awards or the ones for the tiny demos, they were tiny awards. All right, okay. <laughs> they were like, much smaller. The yeah. smaller your memory space, the smaller your trophy, yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, the MSX is not a platform that we've covered before on the show. Um, quite an interesting platform, though, wasn't it, the MSX, back in the, back I, in the old I, days? I the know age. hardly anything about it, well, I apart think, from the name. I've never seen one, but it, again, it was something else. It was big in Asia, really. That was kind of okay. their main platform, I, their, their main market, I think. You know, kind of like we've mentioned before, like the 3DO, they wanted that to be like a, or the CDI, different companies could make them, mm-hmm. but they'd all have like a, a reference platform and the same software would run everything. So it was basically an attempt to be um, a computer platform that any company could make, and it would all run the same game. Oh, so it was, it was kind of like a clone, uh, yeah. like uh, uh, Microsoft. I think Microsoft were involved in it as yeah, well, it actually. it says Microsoft Japan, kind yeah. of a, a clone of Fujitsu. I think it was actually quite big over there, but it never took off in the rest of the world. Okay. Um, but there is a new game that's just come out for it, actually. Um, this is called Wing Warriors, and looking at it, it's a, a vertical scrolling shmup. Nice. So uh, it actually looks... I've, I've not seen any video of this in action, but looking at the uh, the screenshots, it looks pretty good, actually. Very colourful graphics. Looks a bit like, um, you know, if you've played, like, 1942 and yeah. Raiden and stuff like that. It's kind of... You can tell it's a Japanese kind of game. It's kind of got, you know, text flashes up, like, on uh, a lot of the Nintendo games. And it's, like, 48 kilobytes as well. So. Yeah, so... Um, this is kind of... It's very cool, actually, and you, you can download it. And, uh, you know, if you've got an MSX or run it on an emulator... I'll have to have a look into this MSX. Well, that kind of leads on to our next topic, which is um, which systems do you not own but you would like to? Are there anything An MSX. <laughs> um, I'd say uh, Sega Nomad. Oh, okay. If, yeah, if you yeah. ever saw those, the handheld I did, yeah. ones. Yeah, oh, I'd love one of those. There's a few on my list, I think. Um, an Atari Falcon. Oh, yeah. Falcon, uh, uh, like an 060. Or 030, wasn't 030. it, originally? But you can upgrade them, I think, to 060s. Because I, I did an NST last year, um, as we mentioned on the show before. But I've been looking at videos, and there's not that many videos of the Falcon on YouTube. There's only about three or four. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've only seen a few. Yeah, and we've, we've seen a Falcon in the flesh, didn't we? Um, a show we went to last, uh, last November. Um, but there are, one of the videos I've seen on YouTube of the Falcon, this guy's got it upgraded and he's got like a um, sound card in there. He's got and a Radeon he's... card in there. Yeah, yes, yeah, it? yeah. And he's got it like online and stuff like that as well. So I'm looking at that thing and that's quite an interesting platform, that. And I've had a few people actually comment on my ST video going, we'd love to see you cover the Falcon, but dude, when they come up on eBay, they're like 700 quid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I, I bought a Conix Master System. Did that ever come uh, out? <laughs> just because of the, the uh, sound that they had on the advert. Conix. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Um, I'm trying to think what else. A Jaguar, that was on my list, but I've got one of those now. Yeah, you, you've got quite a lot that I want on my list anyway, <laughs> like the Mega CD. Mega CD, yeah. yeah. Which I don't, I don't use my Mega CD enough. I should use it more, actually. Um, I wouldn't mind an Apple Pippin. 
Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Apple Pippin, just to see what crap's been released on that. <laughs> I don't think there was a lot, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't mind, I know I've already got an Amiga 4000, but an Amiga 4000 Tower. The original oh. Commodore one, though. Oh, yes, done. That's the dream machine. Yeah. <laughs> that really is. <laughs> what did they only make, like 200 of them or something, didn't they? 4,000, I think. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, I oh, no, no, 2,000 or something. There was a tiny amount, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it wasn't many made. Yeah. But then you wonder how many of those kind of went to TV studios and they used it as video toaster machines and just put them in a skip after a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, or just didn't care about the case or just smashed oh, it. Oh, I do. Oh, awful. Heartbreaking. So, well, yeah, if anyone wants to donate um, an MSX or an Atari Falcon, then uh, <laughs> links uh, are on the website. A Virtual Boy. Oh, Virtual Boy. That'd be interesting to see. Just I've seen one in a cabinet but I've never actually played on one. Yeah, I know. That would be good to play with. Yeah, so yeah, we uh, donations are always gratefully received. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, we mentioned then a new game for the MSX. It's only fair that we cover one of our old favourite platforms, the Commodore 64, um, which regularly gets new games anyway. Yeah. Um, but I thought this is quite interesting. There's been a new um, overhead racing game released, um, which is called Speeding on the A81. <laughs> That's a really original title. It sounds... Very British. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's got to be, hasn't it? But um, looking at this here, it actually reminds me a bit, and someone's commented on an article that we're looking at here, it looks like the driving stage from the uh, the Ghostbusters game. Yeah, I, 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 I've seen quite a lot of the Ghostbusters game. <laughs> so, well, what's interesting about this is, though, I mean, you know, to be fair, the game doesn't look all that exciting. It's a bit of an overhead racing game, not all that colourful or anything, really. But what's interesting about it is um, that you can actually play this with a an old PC steering wheel. <laughs> That's so good, man. I've not played a game with a steering wheel for years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've actually made this interface. Now, um, this is one of the guys on the Lemon64 forum. This is called um, the JokoPod. So what it is, it's it's an adapter that lets you use old PC steering wheels with a Commodore 64. Okay. So, and apparently it's it's plug-and-play as well, so... (laughs) It will, I imagine it'll work with loads of kind of racing games if they support So you it. could have like the pedals and the gear change yeah, well, and everything. Wow. I, mean, I don't know if uh, speeding on the A81 is the best use of that, but... So you, you could build a, a driving cabinet for the C64. Based around the 64. <laughs> yeah. Well, a mate of mine's actually just built a driving cabinet because we, we were talking about this when we saw the article. I, I'd agree with this. My, my friend Paul, he's a very, very hardcore uh, racing enthusiast. Um, and he's built like a sit-down cabinet mm. and he's got like an Xbox 360 and a PS3. Nice seat this, in there. Yeah, like leather seat, all that, and he's got like a big screen mounted and everything. And it's really, you know, it's like having an arcade racing cabinet at home, really. Uh, but I think there is something to be said about playing racing games with a wheel rather yeah. than a joystick or a joypad. So he's got all this nice technology and you can just come in and stick the C64 and hook it <laughs> the wheel up. Yeah, up to his like 60-inch uh, <laughs> LCD he's got on there, yeah. Downgrade it. <laughs> but you, you were talking about you were playing like, what, Crazy Taxi or something? What you the oh, yeah, yeah, Crazy Taxi. And I remember um, used to go into the arcades and it was so good because I don't know how they did it, but they managed to get the height of the back of it. So when you leaned back, and you were holding the wheel, it was like the perfect position to yeah, sit yeah. in. It was really good. <laughs> well, I remember as well, like uh, Ridge Racer, the first one. Yeah. Um, I used to go to my local bowling alley and they had like, um, it was like the, the proper car. Yeah. And it was like, you know, like a red car. That and the girls in a, a, like with the flags at the beginning. And yeah. then they like, run out the side. It's been that? so long, but yeah, we were talking like 20 years ago, but I always remember, I'd just be drawn to it, I'd think, oh, you know, sit down and like play with a wheel. I used to play like out running stuff at the seaside and things what as well. What was those big motorbike ones that you used to sit on? Oh, it was, yeah, it was a Sega like, one or something. Super Hang On or yeah, something. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you'd like lean to the side on them and stuff, yeah, so yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for racing games though, having wheel support is just, it brings a whole new dimension to it, doesn't it? When you were a kid, it just felt like, oh, I'm, I'm actually driving, this is cool, and you get full <laughs> feedback and all that on the wheel and stuff, so... Uh, speaking of racing games as well, have you seen this on the uh, the Amiga forums? Yeah, I saw this uh, the other day. It's about Stunt Car Racer, isn't it? Yeah, good That's game, it. Stunt Car Racer. Oh, it's a classic. Uh, but there is a guy on uh, EAB, the English Amiga board, uh, Twin B, his name is, and he's got a bit of a problem with, uh, with Stunt Car Racer, that it doesn't run at 50 or 60 frames per second. And this really bugs him. Okay. <laughs> so what he's actually done, he's kind of made a one-man bounty, and he's offering 400 quid to anyone who can fix Stunt Car Racer and make it run at 50 or 60 frames a second. Wow, he must be passionate if he's willing to pay <laughs> 400 quid for one copy of Stunt Car Racer with a fix. Now, this is, he's got a few rules here as well. He said okay. it, it has to be smoother um, than the original game, obviously. And, you know, it has to be up to speed. It has yeah. to run at full speed. Um, it must be stable and not crash. I want to complete the game. No bugs. If I see some errors, um, I'll play it by ear. Uh, it must... Almost certainly be a tweak of the original code, not a rewrite, and it must run through an Amiga emulator as well. So it's going to have to be reverse engineered then. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. 
But then again, then you think about it though, maybe 400 quid is not that much for the amount of work that might need to go into this. It's strange because this is a very different model to what you usually have. We have a thing called Power to the People on mm-hmm. Amiga and Bounties, which are basically we don't have enough software developers. So everyone says we'll put this money in a pot mm-hmm. and we, we can pay for someone to do it. Yeah. And that's usually how projects happen mm-hmm. on the Amiga these days. But this is just one guy here. But this is one guy <laughs> yeah. who just seems to be mega stunt car racer fan. <laughs> and he's, yeah, just... well, he, he's tagged a few people that might do it, like Galahad we had on the show the other the other week. You know, yeah. he, he might be able to do it, which I'm sure he could. But then it's um, he's a bit of a mission though, isn't it, I think? I think it maybe you could, unless you could do like a patch where it just kind of run before the game and then... Or, I mean... I don't, I've played Stunt Car Racer, though, on, uh, on an O30, and it definitely runs a lot smoother than it does on, like, a, a stock Amiga 500, for on example. a vampire, we'll see. Yeah, dude, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just a vampire might run it that fast yeah. anyway. But um, it's kind of cool, though, that, that that guy actually, you know, wants that game, this perfect vision in his mind, he's willing to pay for it. So. Well, he's asking in the right place as well, definitely, because yeah, as soon as he's asked there, all these coders are replying straight away. So. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the 400 quid. <laughs> Uh, now, a final story before we get to uh, Bill Hurd. Um, I think we may have covered this when it got announced, but it's finally out. The Atari Vault has hit Steam with 100 classic arcade games in one package. And it looks really nicely presented as well. It is, yeah. Well, he got like, even though in a lot of these games are on the 2600, they've kind of put it in an arcade cabinet. Mm. Quite interesting. Um, but yeah, it's got a nice menu and you're talking about... Multiplayer, like, you know, multiplayer option as well, which they didn't have before in. So they've added multiplayer... So you can play it online, can into you? ...into other games. It looks like it. Oh, I'm okay. not sure how far it goes, but they said that they'd add in a lot of additional features. Well, you've got a lot of the you know proper old school games, stuff like Pong, Centipede, Asteroids, Missile Command, uh, Jeff Minter's Yells Revenge is on there as well, Cubert, yeah. uh, Empire Strikes Back, Frogger. No E.T., curiously. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but... but Maybe if you could do multiplayer missile commands, you could do two-player anyway back in the days. Yeah, Maybe yeah. you could invite a friend mm-hmm. or you can have two centipedes going around or something. Yeah. Know? Well, they said it's got support for... Because obviously playing these games with a, a keyboard is probably not all that nice, but it's got um, support for the new, new Steam controller and... Uh, oh, okay. I guess you can use Xbox I haven't that seen that thing. Steam controller. What's it's it got like? a weird D-pad. It looks very strange to me. Oh, I'm um, just going to get an image of Google a picture. <laughs> I'm not sure. Cause I've seen kind of videos talking about it. I'm not sure whether it's kind of interchangeable or you can modify it in any way, but it looks like it's just a flat disc. Oh, my God, that looks very weird. Yeah, it's, it's an odd-looking thing. And it looks expensive. like the, it's missing a D-pad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like the yeah. D-pad's come off in the back It's kit. just a flat disc, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, so strange. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it looks a comfortable controller otherwise, but yeah. There Did you, you also hear the other news about a controller this week? What was that? Um, there was a supposed released... Leaked footage of the NX controller. Oh, I didn't. Was it false or true in the end? It was basically an NX controller that someone had made themselves. Oh, no way. And they'd stuck confidential on the side. (laughs) People seem to think it was a... Dude, I, yeah. I think it's just people are that hungry for stuff, aren't they? They're willing to believe anything. I mean, it's, you used to get it a lot with like new iPhones and that when they come out, there'd always be mock-ups online and they'd always be fake. That's it. And, you know, people are actually saying that this is quite good, that this mm-hmm. leaks come out and all these fake leaks because it shows people are still interested in oh, Nintendo. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we have covered like the Wii U and the NX and stuff, even though we know it's not retro, but I think to a lot of our audience and us, I mean, we mentioned in our first episode that we didn't want to be like a, a Nintendo-centric podcast because a lot of the American ones are the big yeah. ones, but... It is still a brand that's, you know, very close to everyone's heart. And it's I think, one of the game. last ones as well. well. Yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, but, but also, uh, one thing I have to mention, sorry, we're just chucking in news stories <laughs> at the end, the end now. <laughs> yeah. um, Sierra, dun, dun, have you heard about Sierra? No, what's this? Sierra changed their site the other day, Sierra Online. Okay. And uh, did a big kind of intro on it, and they're starting to say that they're going to be coming out with products. And was well, this like Sierra, as in like Leisure Suit Larry and yep. the older? Oh, okay, yep. interesting. So. Did they say what kind of products are going to be bringing no, out? No, it was just very teasery. It would be nice to see the return of kind of some point and click games again. Or yeah, yeah. So this could be a, a new age of point and click. We'll see. As long as it's not as crap as that Leisure Suit Larry game that came out on the Xbox 360. Oh, that was the worst oh, thing I I'd ever played. played that one, Don't no. ever play it, dude. Awful. Why is it the modern? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It came out about three or four years ago, but yeah, I bought it, played it by ten minutes. I was like, yeah, let's come back in the box. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very much for checking out this episode of the Retro Hour, guys. Every Friday, you can download it from the website, theretrohour.com, iTunes, YouTube, your favourite podcast client. Yes, yeah, Stitcher, um, Pocket Cast, we're everywhere. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> and if there's anywhere you would like us to be, 
um, keep it clean. <laughs> then, uh, yeah, please do drop us a line if there's any, uh, you know, podcast clients that you use or whatever that we're not on yet. We're trying to get it absolutely everywhere at the moment. Yes, and thank you for all your iTunes reviews, guys. Yeah, we really appreciate those and uh, and SoundCloud comments as well. They're always interesting to look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, it's great to get some feedback. Right, then let's hand you up to this week's special guest, one for the uh, 8-bit Commodore hardcore guys. Um, we have Mr. 8-bit Bill Hurd. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll start at the beginning now, Bill, first of all, then. So what got you into electronics originally? Well, back then, we had just learned about electrons and the fact they had spent. No, they had known about electrons a little while before I came along. But <laughs> in, in the uh, 60s and 70s, I mean, there wasn't much technology around and there wasn't much to occupy. You know, I had a, I turned my chemistry set into a chemistry lab, but what was all around was electronics. And I had an affinity for it. My, my dad had given me one of those little project kits where you had the springs and you push the wires in to connect circuits. And he bought that for me when I was in the fifth grade. And in the sixth, sixth grade, uh, he paid me like $4 after I fixed something of his. And so I made the association between career and electronics like in the sixth grade. Wow. Started very early then. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was. I was fixing things, you know. Uh, I had my uh, television in Indiana, where I'm from, where there just is no technology. I mean, if I'd stayed in Indiana, I'd be been fixing farm equipment or something, right? But I got my uh, television repair license like at 16 or 17, as early as you can get it. I, I had gone down into Indianapolis and gotten licensed to actually do repairs uh, officially. So uh, did your little electronic kit help with like kind of learning about capacitors and stuff like that? I had learned about capacitors the hard way, though, actually in the third grade, now that I think about it. Um, my dad had a strobe light, and so I had taken the back off the strobe light. They were popular. Them and black lights were popular in the 60s, 60s and 70s. And I stuck my finger down across the three leads going to the xenon bulb. Ouch. And I got hit, yeah, with about <laughs> 450 or, you know, to 500 VDC, volts DC, on the finger. And I'm like, whap! And I went, I, I looked back in, I said, those big blue things are like fast batteries. <laughs> so, so that's how I learned about electrolytic capacitors, at least my first time was with my fingertip. You had frizzy hair after that, I bet, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did this lead to um, your career at Commodore then? Well, you, you know, I I had gone through the CB era, fixing CBs, and, and again, got licensed to do that. And my dad worked for RCA in Marion, Indiana, and then moved out to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so I moved out there. And I got a job as a technician in uh, at a place called Pennsylvania Scale Company that made uh, digital scales. And they were, were 6502 based. And this is like 79, 78, when you, there was not a lot of microprocessor based stuff out there. And I, I worked my way up into engineering. I, I literally got offered a job as an associate engineer after I did well in the, in, they did the internal interview, like, yes, 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 get in so we can say we interviewed you. And I had read all these data books, like just front to, front to cover to back, and I knew analog and I knew digital. And he, they ended up bringing me in. And ultimately, you know, I used to say I'm self-taught, but the reality is uh, the self-taught got me in the door and then I learned from really smart people I worked with. And then uh, at one point, a guy named Headley Davis, who ultimately went on to join Commodore, and he did the Commodore mouse, a whole bunch of Amiga stuff, worked for 3DO, web, it, uh, he, he did the DRAMs on the Xbox. I mean, you know, but he just said, hey, there's this place called Commodore, and they're hiring. And uh, so I went down there. Me and my boss had stopped getting along. I went down there in order to preserve my boss's life, basically. And uh, I, I almost blew the interview, but ended up getting a callback and almost blew the callback, but ended up getting a job. Was it a difficult interview? Well, the, the, the first guy I walked in with, who I ended up getting along with uh, really good later, his name was Frank Hughes. Um, I was trying to connect with him and I probably tried too hard. And he's like, yeah, 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 whatever. But then I walked into the second one, a guy named Bob Russell, who is part of the VIC-20 team and those things. He, he, when he's talking to me at one point, he said, well, if you were to like load X immediate uh, 05, and I'm muttering the opcode under my breath, I'm going, uh, you know, A502, you know, and he looks at me and he says another op, he says another command and I return the opcode while looking back at him. And that's kind of when I got when I got past him. He said, OK, we're going to have you come into the plant. 
However, when I got to the plant, the guy, he made it sound, Bob had made it sound like I was coming in just to like see, see some stuff. He didn't tell me I was coming in for more interviews and I was young and naive. So I didn't even bring my resume. And so when I go to see the manager, the first thing I did was hopped in his chair by mistake, which kind of ragged. <laughs> then I didn't have a resume with me. And now it's like, oh, just get the hell out of here. And then now Frank Hughes comes to my rescue. He's like, I got a copy of his resume. So so now I'm friends with him. Yeah, I was I was lucky. I mean, I, it was sheer luck I got in there, sheer luck I got made it through the process. You know, and then after that, it's it's what's in you, you know, as to whether you could keep the job. Yeah, so we were going to ask, what was the life of a Commodore engineer like? Well, there was screaming, lamenting, lots of, uh, you know, hair pulling and lots of partying. You know, it's what you made it. Um, when I first got there, uh, you know, I went, we were in the MOS building, MOS technology. So we're above a chip fab. And, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd heard about wafers and now we're like flinging them down the hallways at each other. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, it's like three of us shoved in little tiny rooms that were painted psychotic blue. And you didn't care, you know, because this is a really cool place to work. And what I didn't know till I read Brian Bagnell's book, because I'd actually been hired as like a technician or something. Or they said, well, we can figure out something with him. And so I was hired as a technician. I got in and the one guy was on vacation. So they put me in his chair and said, here, study all these 6502 manuals. You're going to be the programmer for the disk drives, which was didn't sound as fun, but still kind of cool. But by the end of the week, I had wandered into the hardware lab where they were working on something called TED which is became the plus four that you, you, you may know. And when I looked at it, uh, two things happened. One, I said, well, are you doing that bus sharing with the DRAMs where you can actually get the VRAM data without waiting towards for the horizontal retrace? And, and the answer was, yeah, how'd you know? And I'm like, I'm doing one at home. You know, I'm, I'm playing with that uh, at home on a breadboard. And the other thing was the guy had just quit. So I, I kind of slid in. I bought my second or third week there, I had slid into the position of being the engineer on the of the whole TED series. So it was, again, a kind of luck that, that you know, I just happened to hit that. Well, a lot of our audience will probably know the, um, the TED range, the Commodore 16, the Plus 4, and the 116. What was the original idea and vision behind those machines? Well, it, you know, it came directly from Jack Tramiel. And, it, you know, if you picture the 116, that was it. It was a $49 business machine. TED meant text display. It, you know, we had 121 colors. Uh, it'd been 128, except, you know, eight shades of black, still black. So it's 121 colors. Uh, a little bit of sound, you know, built into the chip. It's not meant to be a SID chip. Wasn't meant to compete with the Commodore 64. You know, way undershoots it. The original TED was called the 264, and it was supposed to cost $79. And later, when they dumped them through comb, one of the... Uh, um, uh, distributors here in the States, they couldn't keep them in stock when they sold them for what the price really was supposed to be with the $79. Mm -hmm. And then we even had the 364, which talked uh, as we had gotten the engineers from the TI Speak and Spell, which was hugely popular in the 70s, 80s, um, if you remember the movie E.T. Yeah. And um, they had planned to do a, this talking desktop motif you say delete and it would say file deleted and that kind of thing. So uh, it, it was meant to be business oriented, not meant to, to mess with the Commodore 64 line. And what happened to it was Jack Tramiel left the company. And without Jack to see it through, you know, through its vision of finishing it up into marketing and actually marketing it, our marketing department sat around and said, well, what can we do? We can like uh, treat it like a Commodore 64. They sell themselves. And when that didn't happen, you know, it ultimately became the plus four when they increased the price to like $299 and added software to it. So, you know, and at that point, it's it's, it's like as engineers, you, you know, you did your part. And even though you watch it, something horrible happened to it. You just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, I did my part. What's what's next? You know, was there a lot of that kind of went on at Commodore then? Well, not under Jack, mm -hmm. but I was from that that very narrow era where uh, I worked under Jack Tramiel and then not under Jack Tramiel. So I, I did like the last uh, consumer computer under him. And I, I did our first consumer computer without it, you know, in the Commodore 128. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was very noticeable and, and he was very much missed uh, after he was gone. But again, we had jobs to do, you know, so we, we forged ahead. It must have been a really big change when he left the company. You, you didn't feel it right away. 
you know, because he, he wasn't a micromanager or anything. Uh, you know, Jack is kind of like he, Jack was this presence. You know who you worked for when you when you worked for him. But that didn't mean you talked to him directly. People went up the mountain and came down with, you know, tablets with what to do on it and stuff. But you started to notice it then, uh, you know, when when things didn't get marketed. Uh, it, and the other thing was middle managers started to multiply and without it like a wolf to, to ki kill them off. Suddenly, you know, uh, uh, half a year later, we're up to our ears in middle managers. Middle managers typically have nothing constructive to, in that environment mm -hmm. to add. So they, they would come over and like urinate on your project and that by way of saying, aha, I've left my mark. And so half of our struggle was to get done in spite of management during, you know, after Jack had left. Was the Jack attack a real thing then? Yeah, I didn't experience <laughs> it directly, but I experienced the, the you know, the urban legend part, but also... If, if you didn't tell Jack you were wrong and that you would change, if it, or if you made an excuse, you didn't last long under Jack as an individual. Um, I wasn't there when, like, the entire department would get let go uh, before that, but it had happened, like, the year before I was there. So it, it was real in the uh, in the culture, uh, but I, I, didn't, I didn't walk in one day and see an entire department missing, no. Um, we also heard you broke a very expensive joystick prototype during yeah. those times. Yeah, you know it, that's interesting because that that the the plus four uh, case was designed by a guy named Ira Valensky, who was a good friend, and he he was he worked out of the Tokyo office. And Ira actually passed away several years ago, and I didn't know it till um, I spoke with I, I met Leonard Tremiel at the Commodore sixty four anniversary a few years back in California. And I happened to just mention his name and he said, oh, he passed away actually coming back from a CS show, oh, wow. like on the airplane from, from an MI, from a heart attack. Kind of, that, that was very sad actually to find that out. But he, he, he was a good designer. He did that look and feel that you see. And in fact, if you look at the 116, it's a work of art. I, I have a video out there that talks about it. And, and people would say, oh, why didn't you use the Atari joystick ports? Well, if you look at the 116, there's no room. You know, it, it's, it's a true piece of art in, in that every single thing is designed to fit. It's a very small machine so, as well, isn't it? Very small chiclet. It was supposed to be an answer to the Sinclair um, Spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think it was called Spectrum, the color one. So it had the chiclet keyboard and everything. Again, $49, right? Uh, you know, so he, he was free to design a new one. He did design a new one. And it came down to a very narrow neck in it. And we, we, when he brought it to um, Westchester, we, a bunch of us said this. this well, that looks good, but I know the way I bang away on my joystick, this is going to break. And he's like, no, it's designed. And I, by that, I think he meant it was gusseted and, you know, stress, um, you know, had some structure to it. I'm going, yeah, I'm not sure. No, no. And Raren will argue with him because now we're into a matter of opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Um, we, I waited till the, the subject kind of wandered on to the next, the topic wandered on to the next one. And then suddenly you hear snap <laughs> and I had snapped the joystick. Now this is from a hard tool. This cost 20 to 40,000. I used oh. to know, I can't remember. It's like 35,000 or something. And I just broken it. And it truthfully, it took more effort than I thought it would, but the fact I could do it made the point. And I was just like, <laughs> sorry, you know, and I slid it towards the table <laughs> and Ira's glaring at me, right? But it did. It got it got reinforced after that. Um, Ira got me back because he used to teach me Japanese, and eventually he slid in a few words that uh, were wrong. <laughs> well, I, I say this as someone whose first machine was a Commodore Plus Four, and I, you know, I've got a lot of fond memories of that system. And um, you know, it was a machine that really got me into computers. But I think, do you think it's fair to say they've got a bit of an unfair reputation in general these days? Well, the way it got marketed and sold, it, 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 the reputation's deserving mm -hmm. of what Commodore did, uh, the Commodore marketing department, you know, the plus four. You, you know, for years I used to call it, oh, and that horrible piece of software. Well, the truth is I don't know anything about the software it got put on it. And Finally, I heard the guy going, you know, some somewhere, some guy who had really written it said, well, it wasn't that bad. And I'd have to probably agree. Um, it just wasn't worth the extra $220 that Commodore decided to charge, right? Mm -hmm. So the 264, had it been sold right in and under Jack's guys and the 116, I think would have done okay, you know, would have solved their niche, which was, um, you know, Commodore 64s were... Uh, the drives were slow. The 64 was kind of bulky, and it wasn't very reliable. And here, this thing comes along. It's a lot smaller. It, it uses a lot less heat, you know, produces a lot less heat. 
and um, it's a lot more reliable. So it would have filled that that small business niche, I think. Uh, but that's not what we made. We we made the <laughs> plus four, and uh, you know it it speaks for itself. Unfortunately. Well, your next big project then, the uh, the Commodore One Two Eight, was that designed right from the start to be sixty four compatible? Then I was on a computer that actually should have been made instead of the 128. I was I was on, but but we didn't know it was a choice, and, and ask me about that if I forget to elaborate. But I was designing uh, a computer called the Commodore LCD, and we had bought our own LCD company called Eagle Picture. So, I mean, this now suddenly we're back to innovative, right? Mm-hmm. That would have been cool. Uh, 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 and if you see the Commodore LCD, there's like three of them in the world, and they're, they're very well styled and things. But the so while I'm working on it, we had hired a guy named Jeff Porter who went on to become the vice president of engineering after I'd left. So he was a good guy, good management, good engineer. And so one of the things we kind of noticed was uh, we didn't need us both on the project. And meanwhile, I had uh, uh, kind of bailed out uh, a guy named Fred Bowen was working with an engineer back in the corner of the lab on something that was supposed to be like a P128 or a B128 or a D128 or something like that. And and the story is that I, I was sitting there listening to the hardware engineer say he didn't understand how it worked. He was arguing. And finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I turned around and told him that he had a short, something was shorted causing the logic analyzer to think it was multiple cycles. You know, when you when something shorts out, it goes bump, bump, bump. And sure enough, he had photocopied a page crooked and cut off one whole column of terms for the programmable logic at the time. So I grab it, showed him he did it wrong. Here's how he'd fix it. And I turned around and went back to work, right? So I fixed this problem, been around for days in like eight seconds. And when I turned back around to look, Fred Bowen was looking at me funny over the top of his glasses. And I looked at him and I got, what are you working on, Fred? And that was kind of it. Two weeks later, I was I was on the, the 128 with Fred Bowen and we kind of pushed this other guy out. And it was while working with Fred that we said, well, let's call it the C128. And it was while working with Fred that we said, well, why don't we try and make it Commodore 64 compatible? Because uh, when we were at CES, I got an earful of how the TED series wasn't compatible. So, and I'd even written a memo saying, yes, Virginia, there is compatibility. My point being, here we got this huge base, why throw it away? So the decision to do that was made by an engineer and a programmer. Now, we never said it was 100% compatible. <laughs> Marketing later said that in one of their flyers. So we're like, oh, well, okay, we can try. Sure, why not? So that's kind of the story of how we got there. It was kind of uh, from the workbench on up, kind of ass backwards. Do you think that maybe kind of hampered it a little bit, though? Because did a lot of people just run it in 64 mode? And do you think developers just kind of made software that would just run on the 64? You know, the way I looked at it, I don't, I don't see anything that didn't get used as a failure. Um, it was our job to throw as much things in as we could and let the users figure out what worked for them is the way we looked at it. And we knew that if we didn't put some the 64 compatibility, first off, the compatibility was kind of like me trying to give back, and when I say me, I do mean the team, back to the developers and to the users. You know, these uh, the developers had spent hundreds of hours making stuff to run on a Commodore, and the users had piles of floppies for their Commodore. So if I could accommodate them and still do something that pushes the, you know, gets us another 10 yards on, on, on the, on the uh, field, then I was going to do that. And, you know, it... it it didn't cost us a whole lot more to do it in money. It cost us a whole lot more in time and risk. Lots of risk, as it turns out. You know, so the decision was to do it because there, there were bigger reasons than just what we wanted to do for a, for a new computer. Now, with that said, then, you know, hey, buy it for the games. But guess what? Now you've got two monitors, an 80 and a 40 column. I think we we're one of the first, if not the the first big computer to do that. We were one of the first. So we were getting you used to an 80 column mode and, you know, we threw the 80 in. there was a lot of reasons we had that we did and we were glad we did before it was all over with, but, oh, so now we've got three operating systems, mm-hmm. you know, a 64, 128 mode and, um, and CPM. And people say, well, didn't CPM, not a lot of people used it. Well, but on day one, you could buy it and use an 80 column um, editor, right? So why wouldn't you do it mm-hmm. is kind of the way we looked at it. 
So at the end of the day, I called the C-128 nine pounds of crap in a five-pound bag. <laughs> and, you know, because there's a joke about 10 pounds of crap in a five-pound bag. Well, we just couldn't quite get the 10th pound to fit, but I got nine pounds in there for you. And if you could find something that was useful to you, then, then, then good. We did our job. All crammed into that very stylish case as well. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it amazes me the size of that PC board in that case to these, this day. We called it the barn door holder oper, opener. <laughs> you wedge that sucker under a barn door and it's not going anywhere. You know, we, we use Sinclair's for the small, do small doors around the place. Uh, but that thing was, and, but yeah, when, if you actually look back at it, we set the monitor on the front of, on, you know, the monitor had two back legs, but no, no front legs. And that was because it was meant to fit sit right on the case. Mm -hmm. So the width of it really was decided by the, the width of the monitor, for example. So, you know, with that said, it, boy, I, I couldn't have added a single other chip because it took just weeks of hand routing to get the, the last chips routed in that thing. You mentioned the uh, Commodore LCD laptop, and that seemed to yes. me a hell of a lot ahead of its time. Uh, how, how come it didn't get released? Uh, that's a great question. And, and, and primarily, Jack was gone. Jeff Porter had taken it over. Uh, we're battling for resources, and it, and it was never meant to be, I'm taking them so you can't have them. But with the 128 being what it was, uh, you know, I tended to get first in the queues for technician time and stuff. And that was fine because I was going to deliver in January and the LCD was going to take, you know, probably till the, uh, you know, a few months into the next year. So Jeff goes, goes to the CES show. We show both equally in the booth. And if you go to C128.com, I, I have pictures of the CES, like 85 or 86. I forget which. We, we come away in. Um, Marshall Smith, who was our now our CEO, who supposedly had come from U.S. Steel. So now we got a guy that supposedly ran steel mills um, running our company, was told by the president of Tandy that there is no business, there's no money in the transportable computers, in, in the portable computers. And he believed him. <laughs> and he believed him. Wow. Right, right. He must have been after the third martini or something. And um, it, later, what's funny is I even read an article where U.S. Steel said he never worked here. So I, I never did find out, you know, where he came from. But they, supposedly U.S. Steel said, no, that's not us. Um, later, we saw an advertisement, and I pasted the, or a, a, an article, and I pasted this outside my office, where the highest single-selling item at Tandy that year was that little blue and gold LCD computer of theirs, which ours just, I mean, that thing sucked and had poor contrast and a poor keyboard. And we had this full thing that would fold open and had these really uh, uh, styled keys that looked like long travel but were short travel made by Mitsumi. And, and again, we made our own glass. So we're not doing this old blue and gold thing. We're, we're doing, uh, you know, this, this really cool thing of our own, way more resolution. And, and, and so under it, I just put, this is what you get for believing the competition when they tell you something. Yeah. And so Jeff even goes to the next, e either that CES or the next CES, he came back with 15,000 orders in hand, order, you know. So he's, he, they, they literally would pay for that, that first run. And it's still, it didn't go anywhere, even though we did that unusual thing of going and getting sales before we finished the computer. So at that point, you know, it, Commodore had digressed into this squabbling mess is kind of the way I look at it. It's strange because there's been quite a few of these little LCD screens, Commodore branded ones flying around on eBay and stuff. I was just wondering, were they used for anything else in the future? Well, I, I don't know if they were the the true ones or not. I saw one of those, and I looked at it, and I, I my conclusion was I didn't know what I was looking at. Ours were made by Eagle Pitcher, and, but the I don't know that those are real or if those came later, like during the Amiga years, and they were still making LCD. Because now we own an LCD con company. What are you going to do with them? You yeah. know, At some point, I'm sure they sold them. So uh, they didn't look like the ones I have, though. Let's let's put it like that. Okay. Speaking of the Amiga, actually, what did you think when you first saw the Amiga? You, you know, we had what was called the Sandbox Group, went and found it and did all the research, and this is under Adam Schwanier, who, who also passed away last year. Kind of where I came into it was at one point Adam had given me the spec, and he was trying to fit it into engineering's flow, and, and I looked at it from a business point of view and returned it saying, sure, a lot of pictures of tanks in this for a business computer. 
meaning its Atari roots were very obvious, mm -hmm. you know, in it. And there was no floppy drive. And that was kind of a flag right there. So, well, you want a business computer um, and there's no floppy drive. And, and you, you guys probably know what came after that better than I did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I wasn't there when the Amiga truly hit. I was there when we announced at CES and I knew like Dave Needle and, and Dale Luck and those guys. But I, I was supposed to be head of the PAL version for like, I think it was a week before I actually turned in my resignation and had, had jumped ship at that point. What did you kind of think of other companies around at the time then? Like, um, what, what was your opinion of Apple and Atari? Was a much competition culture? Well, to the point, you know, I, I, was, I was raised in, in, in the halls of Jack Tramiel, um, where business was war and you gave no quarter. And I'm, I'm fiercely loyal and fiercely, you know, just so oh, I look at them and I just I thought our products were superior. There's just no other way to. Yeah, but not as good as ours, you know. And so the time I was there, it's like the, the couple of years we we you know, we did better than Apple. Uh, I forget which one I went up against and I outsold you know my model against their model. Um, you know, Franklin was kind of in the area somewhere. People had come to us from there and then gone back. I just saw a bunch of other people, you know, that used our chips, a lot of them, because, you know, we were the only people that made our own chips. TI did, but we'd already put or helped put the 99 out of business. Atari, you know, was lost at that point, And then Jack joined and kind of came back at us. But that was after I was there. While I was there, we were it. We were number one, you know, as far as the, with the way the engineers felt about our products. Do you kind of feel that Commodore doesn't get as much respect, though, that it, as much respect as it should from uh, the industry these days? Well, you, all, you, all, you, you know that the winners are going to rewrite history. And you know what? That's their right. You know, if they're still around and you're not, you want. You know, I, I, I had an iPhone for a while and I have an iPad. So, ta-da, you want. <laughs> um, we recognize when the revisionism is going on and who was best and who was first and you know, there's still some stats like, you know, the Commodore 64, regardless how you count it, whether it's 25 million or 27 million, was the single highest selling model, single model of a computer. Um, and literally until the iPad, the way I count it, the iPad counts as a computer. And he was the first thing to sell a single model of uh, of that many units. That's That's hard to dispute, but we're gone and nobody remember. It used to be I could say, yeah, you remember Commodore and people would. And I'd say, hey, remember when your parents owned Commodore? And yeah, they would. Now you can't even say the word Commodore. Nobody, they just don't know who you're talking about. So why did you decide to leave in the end? Uh, I thought they were going to close the department. And I thought they were going to close it rather quickly. You know, in, in the, you know, the LCD had been canceled and this Marshall Smith. And then Adam left. And I had pissed a lot of people off in my way to get the C-128 done. You know, we, we literally did that in five months, including four custom ICs and whatnot. And then a couple months after January to get it through FCC and whatnot. And, you know, I'm, I was, like I said, I'd never been to college or anything. And, and part of me didn't want to be on the street with all my friends trying to find good jobs and, and being the guy without the degree and whatnot. And uh, part of it is I had gotten addicted to one thing leading to the next, you know, and I had things that slow down. And I thought I could go somewhere and recreate the kind of excitement I had at Commodore. And I was pretty much wrong about that. <laughs> you just, you know, if you don't own a chip fab and make things in the millions, you're just not in the same category. How did you feel when you heard about the uh, the bankruptcy announcement then? Well, I kind of wasn't keeping real close tabs. Uh, I, I, I Every year I'd go to a guy named Dave Haney, who's a well-known uh, mega engineer. Yeah. Uh, actually, he was my first hire, um, and he worked with me on the TED series. And and there would be these people I didn't know, you know, every year. I, I didn't realize they were uh, the, the the last Commodoreites, you know, from, from the end. And, you know, I call Commodore a, a Greek tragedy in three acts, right? And the, the first act is the VIC-20, Commodore 64, and PET era. The second act is like around the 128 and, and, the, the, uh, and, and the TED series and the beginning of the Amiga. And then the third act is all the Amiga stuff that came after where no matter what engineer was doing, there was no management that would take, figure out what the best product was and go out and market it and sell it. I, you know, I've, I've heard horror stories about how they go to sell it, decide to only make a couple hundred here, sell more in Europe, but they, then they couldn't do it because they were already coming out with something at twice the price, except they never got done. I just heard stories like that continuously. So uh, have you guys heard of uh, Deathbed Vigil? Yeah, Dave, Dave Haney, Haney, yeah. That video? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Definitely. That's, I, I can't uh, watch it. I, I start hearing the guys' voices of people I know. And it's just too sad. So you've never to watched your it. Question, it was sad. Wow. Is how it ultimately came out. I, 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 there's literally things about the way it ended. I don't even want to know it, just from knowing the people that were involved and stuff. Well, I mean, you, you, obviously now, I mean, we mentioned before that Commodore might not get, you know, a lot of respect from the industry uh, as much as it should. However, in the hearts of the fans, though, um, you must feel like you've left quite a good legacy, though, with the amount of people that still are nostalgic and still continue to use these machines to this day. I'm, I'm surprised that any of the machines still work after a couple of years. They were made to be consumer machines. And, you know, we had just come out of an era of making chips that actually had some issues in the 64 days. Um, we used to have something where uh, the, the chips weren't sealed correctly against the environment. And so they would get this creeping crud underneath the passivation. So I'm from that era where, well, we got it under your tree, but we don't know how long it'll stay working, right? So we're really surprised that they're still out there working and that people are using them 30 years later. That's just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. um, Lots but of guys still, replacing capacitors around at the moment. Yeah, you, you know, you've got your standard aging issues, like in the power supply, especially any heat around capacitors, as you mentioned, um, that does dry them out and whatnot. Uh, but with that said, way more working than we ex expected uh, to still be out there. And, you know, I still get on a regular basis people telling me how their first computer was a was a 128, mm -hmm. for example. And now they're, they, you know, the one guy I met, you know, show me, I'm a PhD now and stuff, but I drove here to have you sign this book, you know, that, that I, I got my start on the 128. And then last year I learned that uh, Notch, I guess it is, that did Minecraft. His first computer was a 128. So I go to my son thinking, yeah, I'll get some points with the, the youngin, <laughs> you know. And I say, hey, you, yeah, Minecraft you're playing? Yeah, the guy started on a 128. He was totally unimpressed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Dad, I'm trying to play. Do, do your kids not have much interest in um, in the old machines then? Uh, no, I mean, he plays video games, but um, I, I, I can't seem to find what it is that makes him want to go, hmm, and tear into something, right? So I've exposed him to hardware and I've exposed him to programming and stuff. And uh, he's, he's still looking for what will drive him. Whereas me, uh, I knew by the fourth grade, you know, what I was going to do, you know. Now we're kind of out of the Commodore era. What are you up to these days? Well, you know, the, the timing is such that the, the um, documentary video called Growing the 8-Bit Generation is just being is just coming out. It was Kickstartered, so the backers have had their, their view of it. But it is uh, being shown this week at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, out there around, around the valley, right, mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. They, they recorded most of it like several years ago. Uh, but then I ended up narrating it. So uh, it, it's kind of cool that it really has kind of come full circle to now we're talking about the 8-bit ge you know, generation and whatnot. So all this week I've been exchanging messages. I mean, even, I think with, with like Wozniak and stuff, and I've been talking with Chuck Peddle and one of Tremail's sons and stuff. And we're all talking about getting together to see this, uh, uh, you know, for the showing of this video this week. So that's what suddenly has been on the calendar is is there was a resurgence of this 8-bit era where the word Commodore is used out loud. And is that documentary, it's got Jack's final interview in, is that correct? It does, it does. It's, it's I mean, and and people that knew him, including his family, when, when that came out and stuff, is just like, wow, you know, mm -hmm. to hear him talk again was just, just something. And you are keeping your website up to date, c128.com, I see? Yeah, you know, I throw stuff up there. I forget I forget about it for months on end, but the forum's pretty active. A guy named Robert Bernardo uh, from the Fresno Computer Group uh, make, jumps in there and makes sure people are getting answers and whatnot. Um, and I, I do a little bit of hardware. You, you've seen the Easter egg on the C128, or are you aware that there is one? Uh, which one? On the Commodore 128, if you type sys32800, comma, 123, comma, 45, comma, 6, it clears the screen and it comes up with, it says software and it lists the three programmers and then it says herdware, right. uh, a, a play on my name, which I didn't know about till the program, you know, till after they released it. Cause if, you, you know, if a programmer puts an Easter egg in, in a computer and then la later complains about not having enough ROM, you know, <laughs> you go smack them and tell them to take the Easter egg out. So they made sure they didn't tell people about it till after it came out. 
but then it's got a nice message. Link arms don't make them, you know, which that's that's Terry yeah, Ryan, yeah. one of the programmers <laughs> that did basic. But I, t- I took the name Herdware, and so now I also have Herdware.com. And I've been playing around. I, I need to put more time into it, but I basically trying to get things where people trying to learn FPGAs and that kind of thing. You know, I'm trying to come out with some educational stuff that they might enjoy and, and analog. Not enough gets done with analog these days. The FPGA is such an exciting technology as well, though, isn't it? You can do the amount of things. Oh, you, you, can, you can write hardware. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd have given, and, and again, remember at Commodore, that was our great thing is we can do a chip. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, with FPGAs, you can't do all chips, but you can do an awful lot of chips, you know, using that technology. But there's really this thing for the Amiga 600 where you can bump it up to like 100 megahertz or something with a <laughs> like a, a yeah. 68, super 68 yeah, HDMI out. Yeah, it's and crazy. <laughs> I've, I've got another question just to ask. Um, the Commodore LCD laptop, is it working at all? Or the prototype? Jeff right? Porter's do, does. Um, and, and we just got together for uh, Brian Bagnall, you know, did the yeah. uh, original book uh, on the edge. And he just made it a two-parter and he had a kickstart for the second part. And part of that was uh, having dinner with a bunch of old Commodore people, and, and Jeff Porter stepped in as a pitch hitter for Andy Finkel, who ran the programmers, and he brought his. And the only problem is he didn't hasn't changed the batteries since 1986. And 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 see that's how we treat this old stuff. We we freak collectors right out. They'll see me throw something or accidentally <laughs> snap some pins off or something. And uh, and same thing. I mean, you know, it worked, uh, you know, for a few seconds and then went, bleh, you know, and changing the batteries and digging out all the uh, oxide out of the compartment might help. On my LCD machine, I have not turned it on. Mm-hmm. And the answer is for that is as long as I don't turn it on, it might still work. <laughs> what you doesn't know, what you don't know, doesn't hurt I, you. <laughs> right, it's it's Schrodinger. If if you know, I don't need to collapse the wave function and find out for sure if it does or doesn't. So uh, <laughs> it might still work. Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating reminiscing about the Commodore days and getting your stories. Yeah, I hope I didn't talk too much. You'll notice I don't have short answers after all these years. Oh, absolutely not. It's been very interesting. And your website is sc128.com if people want to keep up to date with what you're doing. Yeah, and, you have uh, the fun one. And and later, if you want to learn FPGAs or analog or something, uh, herdware.com is another one. And also, I do videos for hackaday.com. Mm-hmm. So if you if you go there, there's the they, they call it Bill Hurd's original uh, Hackaday series videos, and there I've talked about everything from uh, how to tell if your parts are too hot to FPGAs, TTL, CMOS, you know all the different things uh, where I learned over the years. It, you, you get the engineer's point of view on it with lots of hand waving and soldering and scoping and stuff. And of course, growing the eight-bit generation as well. That's um, do you know that's going to be out that's, on general release? I, well, I don't know how it's going to be d- distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing it at the at the Computer History Museum this week. I will be at the VCF Southeast in the second week in April. We'll be showing it there. That's the Vange Computer Festival, and it's in Atlanta. And then the fourth week in April, I think, in Wall, New Jersey, at the at the regular Vintage Computer Festival. Uh, we'll be showing it there as well. So a couple, but that's on that's on the east coast. Really looking forward to seeing it. Absolutely. Yeah, Thanks excellent. so much, Excellent. Bill. It was fun. I, I've never narrated anything before, but if, uh, if if I can get paid to talk, then you know I'm in the zone. Then, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks very much, Bill. All right. Excellent. Nice talking with you guys. And it's good to hear people still remember the C word. 